program tonight, hopefully one which, and I say hopefully, those who are on the left are uncomfortable with, those who are on the right are uncomfortable with. If you're confused, if you're on the left or right, you're even more uncomfortable. Um, it's not a political conversation, although all discourse is itself political, um, and certainly you can't talk about this issue without it in some ways uh, having political implications. But it's much deeper than that. That's why it's called personal transformation. And we're dealing with someone who is a global educator, someone who's a deep, deep Torah scholar who built a learning institution in Dallas, was in Texas for many years, building a pluralistic learning center in some ways sim similar to what VBM is doing, um, and made Aliyah and felt a calling towards, uh, a calling towards dialogue, towards engagement with very, very messy, complicated issues. Um, so Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger uh, was the founding director of the Jewish Studies Institute of North Texas and is now the Director of International Relations at Roots, which we're going to learn more about from him. I'll just say, because his whole bio is in your packet, you have already, uh, that w this is someone who is uh, incredibly deep and thoughtful, but also incredibly compassionate and sensitive, as uh, in his mentor type. Um, everyone should have a packet, uh, an evening <coughs> packet. You should also have a packet about Roots, and you should also have a map of Israel of some kind. So with that, uh, we have until 8.30 tonight, both to listen and learn, and also to ask questions and engage together. Please uh, join me in welcoming Rabbi Hanan Schlesinger. Uh-oh, where can I put this? Israeli, and I've never met even one of them. I would like to take you on a roller coaster ride in a certain sense. The roller coaster ride of the last few years of my life. It's pretty scary, actually, at least to me. And you don't know, you don't know where it's going to end up. Don't prejudge what you hear at the beginning is not what you'll hear at the end. And I'm not telling you what direction it's going in. But there's lots of hairpin turns. Hold on. I often introduce myself with three labels. The first label is Jew. And the second label is Zionist. And the third label is Settler. And I'm going to take five minutes for each of those three labels. When I say I'm a Jew, I think that most of the audience is Jewish, so you know what I'm talking about, but I will still give you my own understanding. In the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God says to Abraham to leave his land, his father's home, his birthplace, to the land that I will show you. And very quickly, it turns out that that land is the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, what we today call the land of Israel. And God says that you're going to be a great nation. You'll have children, and your children will have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The family will become a tribe, and the tribe will become 12 tribes, 12 tribes will become a people, the Jewish people. 
And it's so important for me to emphasize that we are the Jewish people. We're not the Jewish religion. We're not the Jewish faith. We are those things, but much more than that, we're the Jewish people. We're a, a people. And that people, from the very beginning of Genesis, as I just said, has always been connected to a particular piece of real estate. God envisioned us, and we envisioned ourselves to be a nation, a people with a piece of land, a piece of real estate. That's been our self-definition from the very beginning of Jewish history. And I, at the same time, want to remind you of what we say at the Passover Seder, that in every generation, one must see himself as if he personally went out of Egypt. That means at Passover, we don't just remember the Exodus, we recreate it, we relive it. We were there, we show the pictures that we took when we were at the Red Sea, we show them to our children, our grandchildren, we pass on the memories and the experiences. And that sense that I was there at slavery in Egypt and at the Exodus is true not just for the Egyptian experience, it's true for every single way station in Jewish history. The best case scenario is that I remember what it was like to be at Mount Sinai with Moses. I remember what it was like to go into the promised land with Joshua. I remember what it was like when David established his kingdom in Hebron and later in Jerusalem. I remember the temple that Solomon built, all the way stations of Jewish history. I was there. From my perspective, I'm not 58 years old, even though that's what my birth certificate says. I'm 3,000 years old. I'm not just a link in the chain, I am the chain. I was there at every single stage. So that's my deep sense of myself as a Jew, part of a nation, always young, always old, not born 58 years ago, 3,000 years ago, going to live forever as long as the Jewish people have a mission on this earth. I'm part of the Jewish people, and it's alive, and it's meaningful. When I say that I'm a Zionist, I mean, my definition, that I'm one of those Jews, I think today it's the majority of the Jewish people, who understand that at the end of the 19th century, the 20th century, then the 21st, the time has come for the Jewish people to take our faith into our own hands and to reconsummate our connection to our ancient homeland. Because we know that for 2,000 years of exile, since the Romans destroyed the temple and sent us to the four corners of the universe in the year 70 of the Kamenera, we've been in diaspora. We've been going from nation to nation, land to land, never having a place that we could rest. And we've been praying, we've been hoping, we've been yearning, we've been crying, when will we come back to Jerusalem and to Zion? We knew it would happen someday. And I want us also to remember that we deeply understood ourselves in the most existential sense of not being as we were supposed to be during all those years of exile. We were treading water. We were running in place. We were just maintaining our Judaism so that when we get back, we can make it bloom and make it real as it was supposed to be because we're supposed to be a nation. Now, I understand that sense of exile has become weakened in the past hundred years in Western Europe, in America, in Australia, but our forefathers, until the dawn of modernity, lived in exile in a deep, deep sense. So that the fact that we today have been able to regroup and regather and create the state of Israel in our ancient homeland, there's nothing more meaningful from the point of view of Jewish history than that. It's greater than, or at least equal to, the exodus from Egypt. 
We've finally come back and consummated what the prophets envisioned when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, when they talked about the fullness of the Jewish people in their own land building the sovereign state that was envisioned by us. That's really, really powerful. And that's why at the age of 18, I took my two valises and I got up and I left New York and made Aliyah. I went up to the land of Israel to be part of that saga that none of our forefathers in Spain or in Egypt or in England or in France or in Germany or in Poland for the past 2,000 years could have been part of. They wanted to, they wished to, they hoped, they prayed, but they didn't have that opportunity. If I had that opportunity to be, be part of the reconfirmation of the Jewish people in our land, I'm going to take that opportunity. And I did. I've lived in Israel since I was 18. And after I talked about what it means for me to be a Jew and a Zionist, I want to talk about what it means to be a settler. So it probably sounds, when I say settler, like I'm making a real, real political statement full of extremism and radicalism. I don't mean to do that, although I understand that there is politics in, in every statement. When I say I'm a settler, I'm making a historical religious Jewish statement. Let's look at the map. So what is a settler? So here you have this map. The yellow, of course, is Israel since 1948. Israel from 1948 to 67. And to the right, you have what's labeled the West Bank in gray. A settler is someone, a Jew, an Israeli, who lives over the Greenland line in the West Bank. So I am a settler. But I have to tell you that even though the map calls it the West Bank and the media calls it the West Bank, and some call it occupied territory, or disputed territory, or uh, Palestinian territory, or Palestine. I call it Judah and Samaria. Yehuda Vishomron. And that certainly sounds like a terribly radical political statement. I understand that. I call it what I call it because that's what the Bible calls it. It's as simple as that. Since the book of Kings, in the Jewish Bible, in Hebrew scripture, the area north of Jerusalem has been called Samaria, Shomron. There was an ancient Israeli kingdom there called Shomron. And south of Jerusalem was the ancient kingdom, the Jewish kingdom of Yehuda, Judah, led by the tribe of Judah. All together, above Jerusalem and below it, north of it and south of it, together, that's Shomron and Yehuda. Yehuda the Shomron, Judah and Samaria. I live there because that's where our forefathers lived. And I call it what our forefathers called it. How could I call it anything else? How could I call it anything else? My sense of being there is totally based on the continuity with the Jewish past. I will give all the time for questions. I promise you, and I promise you also that you have no idea where we're going. I hope that I have an idea. And I, and I do apologize for having to ask you to, to wait. So, when you open up the book of Genesis, you see that Abraham, our forefather, never went to Tel Aviv not even to the area that is called Tel Aviv today. He also didn't go to Haifa, he didn't go to Hadera or Netanya, he didn't go to Herzliya or Bat Yam, not to Ashdod, Ashkelon. Abraham lived his whole life 
in the central mountain range, what is here, the West Bank. It's true for Abraham, it's true for Isaac, it's true for Jacob. It's true for David and Solomon. It's true for the Maccabees. Most of the thousand years, when the Jewish people lived in our land, we didn't live on the coast. That was Philistine land, and later Roman land, Hellenistic land. We lived in the central mountain range. That's where the Jewish people was born. That's where our kingdom flourished. That's where the prophets prophesied. That's where all our memories are, and that's where all the archaeological remains of our existence are to be found. I live in Judah, in an area called Gush Etzion. Within Gush Etzion, I live in the settlement of Alon Shvut. It's right between Bethlehem and Hebron. You can see on the map. It doesn't say Alon Shvut, but you can measure between Bethlehem and Hebron. That's where I live. And where I live, you literally scratch the ground with your heel, and you come up with potsherds from over 2,000 years ago, and you know that our people were there. And you see the ancient wine presses and the ancient oil presses that we built 2,200 years ago, and you feel the continuity. I live five minutes from an old dirt road that's called Derek Avot, Patriarch's Way. It's a north-south road. It's called Patriarch's Way because we found there an ancient Roman milestone that says 11 Roman miles to Jerusalem. And if it, if it was the ancient Roman road going north-south, we know it went from Megiddo in the north to Beersheba in the south, then it probably almost certainly was the ancient Canaanite road 3,000 years ago going north-south. And if it was, if it is, the ancient Canaanite road going north-south through the biblical heartland, then that's the road that Abraham the patriarch walked on again and again and again. And that's the road that he walked on on his way from Beersheba in the south to Jerusalem in the north to Har HaMoriah, Mount Moriah, on the way to the binding of Isaac, as described in the book of Genesis. It's really powerful to live there. And I also want to tell you that on Derech Avot, on Patriarch's Way, are ancient mikvaot, ancient ritual baths, carved out of the limestone by our forefathers 2,000 years ago to provide a place to bathe themselves in flowing waters on the way to the temple in Jerusalem to fulfill the pilgrimage of the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And those ancient mikvot are still there today with the seven steps going down, the seven steps coming up, and they fill up with water in the winter and you can just see the thousands and tens of thousands in your mind's eye of pilgrims from 2,000 years ago on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. There's no other place that I would like to live. My Bible, I have many of them, of course, some of them are rather wrinkled and crinkled. That's not a disrespect. It's because I and my colleagues and family and friends, we learn the Bible not only in the synagogue and the classroom, we learn it by putting it in our backpacks and going outside and then opening it up. When you get to here and you get to there, you see this is where David killed Goliath. That's, that's true. That's where it happened. And this is where Abraham built the altar. And this is where Joshua offered his sacrifices on Mount Ebal. It's alive. It's all about Jewish continuity. It's all about Jewish renewal. It's about bringing the Jewish people back to the pages of the Bible and recreating our ancient history in a new and old fashion.
And I want to tell you that I believe that the strength and the power and the righteousness of that story, which is my identity and my narrative, the power and the righteousness of that story has blinded me, absolutely blinded me for 33 years of my life. It prevented me from seeing the Palestinians. My truth was so all-encompassing that it put blinders on my eyes and I couldn't see the Palestinians who were there all around us. I saw, but I didn't see. They were part of the gray scenery, the blur that wasn't meaningful and barely existed. And I want to tell you just two tiny stories of how blind I and we were and are. So I was in my car about a year and a half ago, almost two years, and I had in the car two Protestant pastors from Texas that asked me to show them around the recreation of Jewish life in the biblical promised land. And I was and I still am very proud of what we've created in Judah, in Gush Etzion. And I showed them this settlement and this kibbutz and this field we planted and this winery and this restaurant. And there was room in the car for trumpisting, we say in Hebrew, for hitchhikers. I picked one up and I let him off and a second one and a third one. When the third hitchhiker got out of the car, one of the pastors, Bob Roberts from Texas, he said to me, Hanan, you're such a nice guy. You pick up hitchhikers. We don't do that in Texas. And I said to him, Bob, yeah, we all pick up hitchhikers around here because we feel a certain sense of brotherhood and shared purpose and mission. I pick up every person that puts out his finger, I said. Everyone that needs a ride, I give them a ride. And by the time I finished the sentence, I realized that I was lying. I was lying to myself. And I was lying to Bob, because I don't pick up every human being that puts out his finger. I only pick up Jews. And I realized at that moment that subconsciously, I wasn't seeing the Palestinians. I weren't, wasn't equating them with existing human beings. And I said to myself, and actually said to Bob, what happened here? How did I say that? How could I have said that I pick up every person that puts out their finger? But that's how blind I was. It's as if the Palestinians weren't there, transparent. I want to tell you another story. It's not about me. It's about a young girl of 27 years of age. And this only happened six, five months ago. Uh, I was, it's pretty well known where I live, the work I do with Palestinians, which I have not told you about. And she heard about this. And she called me up and said, I want to hear about it. I might want to volunteer. So this girl who's lived in a lone food her whole life, She's the daughter of a very well-known rabbi. Came over to my house. It's actually was Sukkot time. She sat in my sukkah. I explained to her half an hour what we do in building bridges to Palestinians. And she said, I want to volunteer. That's great. So I said to her, I have a friend, a Palestinian in Beit Umar, who's about your age. Call him up and do this project with him. And she said to me, what's Beit Umar? Parentheses. Beit Umar 
as a thriving Palestinian city of 20,000 inhabitants, a seven-minute drive from where this girl spent her whole life in a lone school. She grew up next to a city of 20,000 human beings, and when I said Beit Umar, she didn't say where is it, she said what is it. She didn't know it existed. She certainly didn't know where it is. How could you live your whole life and not know that there's a city there? Now, I'm not blaming her. I'm blaming us. How could that be? So now I'm going to tell you more stories. I'm going to tell you how we live. We Israelis and we Palestinians live right on top of each other. Towns and villages right next to each other. And on the roads, there's Palestinian cars with Palestinian license plates, and there's Israeli cars with Israeli license plates. We drive on the same roads, we look at each other through the windshields of our cars, and we have no idea who is in that car. No idea. We live in separate towns and villages, speaking different languages, under different legal systems. I live under Israeli law, and they live under military law, different law. Different municipalities, those who pick up my garbage don't pick up their garbage. Different educational systems, different schools, different media, radio, newspaper, television. We listen to and hear different news so that we literally live in different worlds. Did I say different religions? Of course, different days of rest. They have their Sabbath on Friday, we on, on Saturday. It's completely separate and completely, completely different. There's no contact. The after-school activities for kids are completely separate. The shopping centers are completely separate. Everything is separate. You're so close and you're so far away. And when you are so close but so far away, there's going to be, and there is, ignorance and suspicion and stereotypes and resentment and hate and anger and fear. I said fear. There'd be fear anyway, but now add into the bubbling mix the aggression and the violence that's perpetrated again and again and again, and that fear becomes the controlling factor in life. Both sides are afraid of the other and angry at the other and deeply resentful of the other. And both sides go to sleep at night with the secret, spoken or unspoken dream and hope that the other side will disappear tomorrow. Will disappear tomorrow. Because they don't belong here. That's what the Israelis say about the Palestinians, and that's what the Palestinians say about the Israelis. They don't belong here. We're afraid of them, and we want them gone. It's true on both sides. And I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate how deep that fear is. This is not more than two years ago. I'm talking to my wife in the living room of our apartment. And we agreed that we want to get a certain potted plant for that corner. And I said to my wife, ah, I just saw that on the road at the gate to a lone shvut, someone put up a sign, a Palestinian put up a sign on the other side of the road, a sign in Hebrew that says, Mishtelet HaShalom the peace nursery, selling potted plants and gardening implements. Palestinian, there are a few Palestinian houses on the other side of the road, right by the gate to Lunchfut. They want to make a living. They open this nursery to attract the Jews to buy things there. 
Little did they know that Jews don't go in Palestinian establishments. But they put up this sign. So I said to my wife, why don't you go to this new nursery and get what we need? And the strangest thing happened. She did what I suggested. <laughs> and it's not just that she's my wife and I'm her husband, but Jews don't go into Palestinian places. But she forgot herself, and she went. And she came back half an hour later with the plant in her hands, and she told me the story that I'm going to try to tell word for word. I got in the car, she said. I drove five minutes to the gate of the lunch booth, parked, turned the ignition off, locked the car, walked across the street to this new nursery. There was a Palestinian kid there minding the store. His Hebrew wasn't so well, it was flustering. He called over the owner, Palestinian man who knew Hebrew better. We talked, my wife said, and he took me, just he and I, into the nursery. And I told him what I wanted. He opened the door of the hothouse. We walked in together alone to the depth of the hothouse. He showed me some plants there. I got what I wanted. We walked out together. He closed the door of the hothouse behind him. On the way to the cash register, we passed two or three Palestinians eating and smoking and talking Arabic. And I paid for what I wanted. He said goodbye, said goodbye, walked across the street to the car, drove home, said, my wife, here's the plant. And then she said that that was one of the most frightening experiences of her life. I'll never do it again, she said. And after a few seconds of silence, she said concerning herself, how was I so stupid to risk my life? They could have killed me. I barely got out of the lion's den by the skin of my teeth. And I remember looking at my wife and not saying anything. Because I wanted to say, what are you talking about? Nothing happened. You got the plan. It was convenient. It was cheap. But I know that fear is irrational. And I knew that I couldn't say what I wanted to say to her because she wouldn't understand. I looked in my wife's eyes and she was traumatized. That's the way we live. We're afraid of everything. We're afraid of the other. And they're afraid of us. And now I'm going to tell you how my life changed. Two years ago and a week, everything was transformed. I had lived in a lone shvut for 33 years, and then had spent of those 33 years, eight years in Dallas, Texas as a rabbi, came back just two and a half years ago, and I had met Muslims in Dallas, done interfaith dialogue, and I wanted to do that in Israel. I put out some feelers that I want to meet Muslims, Palestinians, and lo and behold, a Protestant pastor from Reston, Virginia contacted me on Facebook, and he said, I can introduce you to Palestinians. And he said that I come to the Holy Land twice a year, meet settlers, meet Palestinians, and introduce them to each other. So he came to the Holy Land, this was January 2014, he came to my living room, we made up a time, I told him my life story, and we talked a lot, and then he said, next Thursday afternoon, Hanan, I'm going to introduce you to some Palestinians. And next Thursday rolled around, and I went to the front door of my home, and I told my wife where I was going, and she said, exactly what you'd expect, don't go, it's dangerous. And I went, and I was scared. I walked just 25 minutes through the Palestinian vineyards and orchards, and my heart was pounding. 
I was afraid and I didn't know what would happen. I'd never met a Palestinian before. I had never met a Palestinian before. Now, I've been a soldier arresting Palestinians, but that's not meeting them. And I've been a homeowner alone, shlut, having menial workers in my home, plumbers and garters. That's not meeting them. And now, for the first time in my life, I was going to meet Palestinians after 33 years. So I get to this piece of Palestinian farmland, according to the directions I was given. It's a compound surrounded by a stone wall, and I walk in the metal gate, and I see something that can't happen, a miracle. I see 15 or 20 Palestinians and 15 or 20 Israeli settlers talking to each other and eating, they're having a party. So I walk up to this woman who's dressed in brown from head to toe, I can only see her face, and I say hello in English, and she said back to me, hello. <laughs> and I said, how are you? She said, good, and I said, you know, where do you come from? And we talked a few seconds. And then she said, no, it was me that said. I said to her, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And she said, I can't believe I'm talking to you. We don't talk to settlers. And we kept talking. And then she introduced me to her husband and to her son. So I meet her son, Yazin. So Yazin is a 17-year-old man, boy. And he's wearing a windbreaker that says in English, Seeds of Peace. Anyone heard of the camp in Maine, Seeds of Peace? It brings kids from the conflict zone, Palestinians really, to Maine for a summer camp to meet each other, reconciliation, peace, dialogue. So I see Yazin wearing this jacket that says Seeds of Peace. I'd never heard of Seeds of Peace in my life. And I say to myself, how dare a Palestinian wear a jacket that has the word peace on it? Because they don't know anything about peace. And I really thought that he was like, you know, fooling me. Or... So I talk to Yazin, and he tells me about the camp. And I have to tell you the truth. I was very surprised that he was intelligent. And he talks about reconciliation and how he met Israeli kids and he's in contact with them on Facebook, how he wants to actually do dialogue with Israelis and do something to bring peace. And I can't believe what this kid is telling me. I almost didn't believe what he was saying. So then I meet his father. His father is Jamal. He's now a good friend of mine. And Jamal says, hello, how are you? Uh, we're from Beit Umar. Jamal tells me that they're from Beit Umar, and I want to tell you what went through my mind. Because my family and I, now we live in a lone shoot, but we used to live in Karmetsur. Karmetsur, 30 years ago, when we used to live there, is a small Israeli settlement. We had 21 families in those days, south of a lone shoot, almost in the direction of Hebron, Hebron. And we were on the border of Beit Umar, with the fence separating between us and Beit Umar. And we lived there during the Second Intifada. And I remember Palestinian kids throwing rocks over the fence at our kids. I remember that. And I remember the stories in the newspaper of terrorists coming out of Beit Umar. And I remember people being shot, Israelis, by people in Beit Umar. And I remember in the middle of the night coming back from work at home on the access road to Kamitsur, boulders across the road. I have to get out of the car at 10 at night and move the boulders to get into Kamitsur. And I'm afraid, of course, that I'm going to be ambushed from the side of the road. I know Beit Umar. And also went through my mind a funny but perhaps reprehensible story. Well, when we used to live in Kamitsur, right next to Beit Umar, our kids were little. And you know, sometimes it doesn't happen in your homes, but in our homes, sometimes the parents got angry at the kids, like, you know, really angry. And it wasn't me, it was my wife, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and my wife sometimes cursed at our kids. And what she used to say, it still rings in my ears, is, Go to Beit Umar. English translation, go to hell. And now I'm meeting 
people from hell. And I can't believe that I'm meeting them. And they're human beings. And they're just like me. So when he heard, when Jamal heard that I used to live in Karmitsur, he takes out his smartphone to show me on Google Maps where he lives in Beit Umar. And I look at him and I can't believe that a Palestinian owns a smartphone. <laughs> really. And he opens up Google Maps to show me, and I didn't know what Google Maps was then. He teaches me how to use Google Maps. And he shows me where he lives. He lives in a neighborhood in Beit Umar that's abutting the fence right next to Karmit Sur. We were like neighbors. And I remember then when the wind was blowing in the right direction. At night, you can hear voices from the Palestinian homes floating through the fields into our living room. And now I'm meeting the guy, the devil. And then Jamal says to me the following. He says, Hanan. You know, our kids, when they see someone who looks like you with the big kippah and the beard and the tzitzit hanging from your pants, our kids start to cry. And I said, Jamal, why do they start to cry? And he said, Hanan, you don't understand? I said, no, I don't understand. What's going on? So he said, you people look like you with the big beards and the tzitzit and the kippot. You carry submachine guns and you kill our kids, he said. I couldn't believe his lack of tact. I just met him 15 minutes ago. And I didn't know what to say. And there was a long silence. And then I remember a light bulb going off in my mind. And I suddenly realized for the first time in my life how a Palestinian looks at me. And I remember the thoughts crossing my mind that, you know, it's true. When we walk out in the fields, we carry guns. We're afraid of them. And how does it look, I said to myself, that these strange-looking Jews that all look like me, with these long beards and tzitzit and kippot, how does it look to Jamal's three- and five-year-old kids that they're all carrying guns? That's frightening. And I got it. And Jamal says to me, Hanan, we're all afraid of you. And I said to him, no, we're all afraid of you. And that's the way the conversation ended. We just looked at each other. And we walked together to a little gathering on the side and the people who were left, there was about 10 Palestinians and 10 Israelis, we sat together in a circle and we told stories of who we are. And one of the Israeli settlers who had met Palestinians many times in the past explained what it means and why we're here, like I explained to you 20 minutes ago. And a Palestinian, a man who owns the land where we were sitting, his name is Ali Abu Awad, he took 20 minutes to explain what it's like growing up in Beit Umar. That's where he grew up. And he spoke without rancor, without hate, without bitterness, but he described the suffering of his life. And he told us about living under Israeli occupation. Did you say occupation? Never in my life had I heard anyone say those words. I read them in the newspaper, and I heard them on the radio and television, but never before in my life that I hear someone who said he lives under Israeli occupation. And I knew that he meant under my occupation, because I'm an Israeli. And I said to myself, where's occupation? There's no occupation. We Jews live here by the right of Jewish history, our only refuge from all the lands of the world. We built here a righteous society in the vision of the Bible. We're making the desert bloom according to the visions of the great prophets. What occupation are you talking about? And he described living with water only once a week and no building rock 
rights and lack of movement, no democratic process of having your house invaded in the middle of the night every once in a while by soldiers who destroy and sometimes uproot and sometimes arrest, living in fear, a checkpoint at the entrance to your village every day of your life. And he described his history, Palestinian history, and he used the year 1917 and 1948 and 1967 and First Intifada and Second Intifada, he was using the building blocks of my history to weave a narrative that was really strange and really offensive and really different to me, but I didn't hear him say anything that I could point to and say that's false. But I was really <clears throat> offended and, and challenged and confused. And I walked out of that party and I walked home and I didn't know what to do with myself. I took what I heard very seriously, but I didn't know how to process it. And I remember literally pacing back and forth in my study for days on end, feeling a little bit nauseous. Like I have to pick my stomach off the floor and put it back in. Because I heard something that just didn't jive with what I was and what I knew, but it, it was a human being who experienced it. What am I gonna do with it? And I went to my computer, I went to Google, you know, like everyone, and I typed in Israeli occupation of Palestine, just to see what I'd come up with. And I came up with all these leftist websites that a good, orthodox, rightist, religious, settler Jew like me should never be caught dead reading. And I read them. And it was not pleasant at all. And a good deal of the stuff I read was directed directly against me. The shuttle is the source of all evil in the Middle East. And a lot of what I read I thought to be false. And some of what I read I realized to be true. And what allowed me to realize that it was true, even though it contradicted everything I knew, was because I think I'd met a human being who had cracked open the window of my soul with his humanity. And I could no longer ignore what for 33 years I ignored. Now, I didn't ignore it willingly 30 years. I ignored it. Subcon unconsciously, but now there were human beings that I had met who I heard were suffering and I had to figure out who I was and what my relationship to them is and should be. So I read, read a lot, and I went and met more Palestinians, Ali and other Palestinians, and I talked to Israelis who had met Palestinians, and I went through a long process that's not over, I'm a work in progress, of trying to absorb another truth into my soul, that there are human beings here that I've never taken account of, and there's a national narrative here that sounds like it has some legitimacy, and they have a real story, and they have suffering, and they have pain, and they have gripes against us, and I had to find a place to put that. And I began to see that our triumph of 1948, the creation of the State of Israel, which for me <coughs> was and is one of the greatest, most righteous and wonderful things that ever happened in Jewish history, I began to realize that our triumph is their tragedy. And our reuniting of the land of Israel is their occupation. And it was really hard. And I came to a place in which I'm gradually making room in my soul for an additional narrative in addition to my truth, a second truth, a partial truth. On one shoulder, Ali likes to say, on one shoulder he has the Jewish-Israeli burden, and it's pretty heavy. On the other shoulder he has the Palestinian truth, 
He's gone through his own personal transformation in the past 15 years. I've gone through mine in the past two years. We're still both works in progress. And we say the following. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook, uh, the great mystic and Jewish leader, the first rabbi, the first chief rabbi of the reconstituted Jewish settlement of the land of Israel uh, in the modern era, he said that there's truth everywhere. And those truths are all partial, like the sparks we talked about earlier, those who were in the presentation beforehand. And Rav Cook asks a theoretical question. If there's truth everywhere, then is there such a thing as falsehood? If it's all true, is anything false? And his answer is that falsehood is partial truth masquerading as complete truth. When you think it have, you have it all, that's when you have nothing. And I began to say to myself, this was a year and a half ago that I began to say this, that I lived all my life with a wonderful, powerful, invigorating, righteous truth of the Jewish Zionist settler narrative. And I didn't know about the Palestinians. I had been making my partial truth into the only truth. And if I had been making my partial truth into the only truth, then my truth was false. My truth was false. And for the past uh, 18 months, I've been involved in expanding my soul, learning, meeting, understanding, growing. And it's, it's really hard, and I'm still nauseous sometimes. I want to tell you that uh, Rav Shmuley said I should tell the story. I told him, for this, I told him earlier uh, that I've been uh, speaking trips around the U.S. with my Palestinian partners. One of them is Ali Abu Awad. And at the end of the first trip to America, this was a year ago, I was in the back seat of a car and the driver was driving us from one gig to another. Ali was in the front. And I started to cry. And Ali turns around and said, Hanan, why are you crying? And I said, because I don't know who I am. We just come from a gig that was really powerful. And people had asked us questions and I'd answered things I never said before. Things that sounded awfully like the things that Ali says. And I suddenly realized that Ali's identity was becoming part of my identity. And I didn't know what to do with it. And he said to me, Hanan, get over it. it happened to me 10 years ago. <laughs> and, and then we began to notice, as we spoke in more and more places around the US, that my speech began to incorporate more and more lines from his speech. And his speech began to incorporate more and more lines from my speech until I heard him telling the world that the Jewish people have an intrinsic historical right to the whole land of Israel from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. And I heard myself saying, saying to audiences around the world that the Palestinians have an intrinsic historical right to the same land. And we realized that we and the other activists involved in our work have been transformed. And I guess I'll take now uh, seven minutes to tell you how we do this and what we're doing. So uh, as I'm going through this, I forgot to tell you one more thing. I just wanted to add that just recently, in the past seven months, I began to realize, and this was because my Palestinian partners have been urging me to see this, I can't just pride myself on expanding my soul in a spiritual journey. I have to do something about it. I have to act differently. I have to find a way to serve the values of my Judaism and of Zionism in a fashion that doesn't come on the back of another people. Because it turns out, I never saw this for my whole life, 
but we have been living out our truth, which is true, in a fashion that has made it oppressive to another people. And there has to be a better way for Hanan Schlesinger and for all the settlers of Judah and Samaria and all the Zionists and all the Jews to live out the true, the true, the deeply true and righteous truths of Judaism and of Zionism in a fashion that doesn't make korbanot, that doesn't make uh, victims of another people. So to further this vision, we've created Roots, which is an Israeli nonprofit. It's called Roots in Hebrew Shorashim in Arabic Judur, the local Palestinian-Israeli grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. We have this piece of land that's uh, owned by Alan's family, and it's a safe <coughs> space where Israelis and Palestinians can meet each other. Now you have to understand, there's no other safe space in the whole West Bank. Every place is either Israeli settlement or a Palestinian village or a road. But where can the two sides meet? Palestinians can't go into Israeli settlements without work permit and without armed guard. Israelis can't go by Israeli law and by fear into a Palestinian village. Where do we meet? There is no place to meet, and no one meets. Ali has taken his family land and dedicated it into a peace center. And it just happens to be that it's a comfortable place and a safe space for both sides because it's Palestinian land surrounded by Palestinian farms, but it's right next to four different settlements. Everyone feels comfortable there. And we bring together families, we bring together children, we've had summer camps, we have photography workshops, language seminars, uh, women's groups, sewing, pottery. We bring people together to see each other, just to see each other and then to listen to each other. You know how hard it is to listen? When people come for the first time, they argue and they shout, they say, no, we're right, no, we're right, you did this to us and they did us. And people are in a competition of suffering. Who's suffered more? Who's a greater victim? And I sometimes laugh. I try not to show that I'm laughing. And uh, sometimes people get over it. And we train them to listen, not to try and convince and not to show how the other is wrong just to present who you are and when the other is presenting to listen and then go home and think about it see if you have room in your soul to accept that that's his truth and perhaps it's not only his truth but perhaps there's some truth in his truth and perhaps there's some legitimacy in his in his claims and gradually we're building a whole cadre of palestinians and israelis who see some truth on the other side and have absorbed that truth into their own soul and their own identity it's really confusing and it's really difficult and it's really, I have to tell you the truth, painful and unmooring. But what comes out of it is a richer, deeper human being, I think. And also what comes out of it is the groundwork for any future peace settlement. So I'll end with that and I'll open it up to questions and answers. for every word you say. Um, please don't be shy in asking questions. Uh, a reminder that it's not a time to make your declaration or your statement, but to ask questions. Um, don't worry about it sounding foolish or naive. This is all messy and complicated. It's sounding too far left or too far right. Just let's be transparent and vulnerable with each other and, uh, and, ask some, and, ask some, and have, have some interesting conversation for a half hour. Please, yes.
Yes. Is that part of the framework organization? Uh, Rabbi Malkior is a veteran Israeli um, peace activist. He was a member of the Israeli government's cabinet 23 years ago. He has a number of nonprofit organizations. Some bring together Israeli Arabs and Jews, not Palestinians, but Israeli Arabs. Some bring together different varieties of Jews around the spectrum. And uh, his, one of his organizations called Mosaica, they have been our uh, mentors for, for the first year of our existence, of Greek's existence. So I really owe a lot to, uh, to him and his work. Uh, State of Israel is yes, in, is in Eretz Canaan, is in the land of Canaan. everything else that I said, because Abraham and <coughs> Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon didn't live in Tel Aviv. And I wanted to be connected to the sources of the Jewish people. Now, Tel Aviv is good also. I have nothing against it. And it's part of the biblical land of Israel. It's part of the state of Israel. But if you really want to feel the continuity, that's my feeling. And the feeling of half a million other people. <coughs> now, I, let me just say one more thing. I think this, I just want to say that uh, when we come to the boundaries of talking about politics, I don't claim that my truth has to be accepted by you. Of course not. But sociologically, you have to know that half a million people feel in their tissues the things I talked in the first 15 minutes. Any peace plan has to take into account the emotions and the narrative and the identity of half a million Jews who live in Jerusalem, Samaria, and feel that's the only place they could live a meaningful Jewish life. This is a, that's a sociological fact. Put down the phone, open my wallet, empty. 
What am I going to do? I go to my grown daughter who lives next door. She's 27. I said, can I borrow some money? She said, what do you need it for? I said, Ali called and he has to borrow some money. And she said, don't go, it's a trap. I went and it wasn't a trap. I was scared. So that's what my daughter felt and that's what my wife, you heard my wife earlier. Uh, since those two stories happened, Ali has been our Shabbat guest. He's come up for Friday night, uh, played with my grandchildren, ate with us, sang with us, and put on the kippah that we gave him for Kiddush and Birkat HaMazon. And Ali's been in my house uh, three or four times after that. I've had groups of uh, Israeli settlers come here and speak. Uh, Ali's come to my house uh, to do a <coughs> webinar. We've taught together in uh, Muslim schools around the world, in Malaysia, in, in Egypt. On the screen, they see Ali and Hanan in my study with all these Jewish books behind. And whenever I go uh, to meet Ali, which is almost every day, my wife says, give him my regards. My wife's a different person today. And uh, what's most surprising to me is uh, she tells me that, uh, I guess women are less inhibited than, uh, than men are because I don't get a lot of public comments to my face in the lunch because what I'm doing, but she does. People are uh, kind of criticizing her because of what I do all the time. And she tells me, they ask me, my wife says, do you agree with what your husband is doing? And she says, yes. And that's really <laughs> unexpected. Is it, can it be me? <laughs> How it's been received? Well, you know, it's a safe space for those who want to engage in the safe space to come together. But how is it received in, the, in that just yes. peripheral space? Of the majority of Israelis living in the Lone Shvut and in Gush Etzion do not agree at all with what we're doing. They're afraid of the Palestinians. They're angry at the Palestinians. They feel themselves to be victims of the Palestinians. And they feel that we are here by right and they don't belong here. And there's nothing to listen to. That's, I think, the way most people feel. But when I talk about a majority that doesn't agree with us, that means there's a minority that it comes to events and begins to listen. We're a small, small group. Uh, we have a core of perhaps 15, 20 on each side, Palestinians and Israelis, and we have peripheral groups of perhaps 200, 300, 400 local people on each side who have been in our events. We have another uh, 2,000, 3,000 from around Israel and Palestinians participated. But we're small, but uh, we believe we have responsibility to keep growing. I'll say a number of things. In my sense is, and uh, Rav Shmuel interviewed me for a podcast a few hours ago and I talked about this extensively. My sense is that one of the foundations of being Jewish is the concern and empathy for the other. The most oft-mentioned 
Torah is to love and not oppress the sojourner, the slave, the widow, and the orphan. And the foundation of that, of those commandments, is the fact that you were slaves in Egypt, and you were sojourners, and you were the other in Egypt. You were the stranger, and therefore you should know what it feels like. As far as I understand it, that's really the deep reason why we celebrate Passover, to inculcate into ourselves and our children that sense that we were there, we know what it's like, and therefore we will not do it to the other. Because we know the heart of the other, as the Torah says, and therefore we should be able to, because we were once there ourselves, we should be able to love the other. Now each generation has its own, has a different other. For Israelis, the Palestinians are the other. Now, in addition to the fact that they're our stranger, there's violence, and it's not easy, and it's complicated, and we have legitimate claims, and they have some legitimate claims. It's really complicated. It's easier to love the other when you don't perceive him as being out to kill you. It's even harder when there's a war going on. But I think that the only way to put an end to that war is to begin to reach out, both sides, it's not just our responsibility, it's both sides' responsibility, to hear, to see, and to understand who they are. And I just want to add that our movement, Roots, uh, is really uh, the resurrection or the reincarnation of an earlier movement that was called Eretz Shalom, the land of peace, which doesn't exist anymore, which was the first movement of settlers trying to understand Palestinians and vice versa. And it was founded by Rabbi Menachem Fruman, who was the, uh, the crazy peace activist settlement rabbi. He died three years, three years ago. Uh, his widow is one of our major activists. And we see all our work as being in his memory and his footsteps. And he always said that most perceive religion to be the source of the conflict. Yet he believed religion is and can be both Judaism and Islam the source of a, of a solution. And I've already said that, I just want to say one more, it's okay, I can go on, right? Uh, you know that uh, whether you agreed or disagreed with the Oslo Accords that tried to make peace in the Holy Land decades ago, there's one thing that is absolutely true. The Oslo Accords were secular Jews making peace with secular Muslims. That's a fact, it's a historical fact. Uh, and religion was considered to be an evil that causes conflict, and the way to make peace is to get rid of it or sweep it under the rug, to, to ignore it. Uh, Islam and its values was not brought into the negotiations, and Judaism and its values was not brought into the negotiation. As a result, the Jewish the Jewish people who felt themselves to be the bearers of Jewish tradition were marginalized and revolted against the Accords. And the Muslims who felt themselves to be bearers of Muslim tradition revolted against the Accords. And you know what that sprung? It sprung Hamas on one side and the Jewish underground on the other side. And you can't ignore the fact that there's lots of religious Muslims and lots of religious Jews. It's a sociological fact. You might not like it, you might not agree with it. You might think that everything I said about the Bible is false, that's okay. But sociologically, these people exist. I exist, you know? What are we gonna do with me? And people think like me. What are we gonna do with, with people who as Muslims believe that the whole land is deeply connected to them? We have to take this into account, and therefore we believe we have to make peace with the religious people. 
They're the heart of the conflict and they will be the heart of the solution. There's a number of questions I'm gonna throw in myself first. Um, you must be in a lonely position. From the left perspective, you are an extremist. You are an orthodox settler who's living in settlement, who left the comforts of America to go and live in Kofi Buddha or Shomron. You're a radical, right? And from the right perspective, you're a traitor, and you're naive, right? You believe the Palestinians want peace, and, 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 and you're going to go meet with them and try to talk, and when the, we know what they did the day before. So it's obviously a lonely place to be demonized by both sides. Uh, so I wonder if there's any reflection on that. But also, how big is the base of allies you have of people like you? Is there just Rabbi Hanan Schleifinger? Or of, the, of those who consider themselves of your hashkafa, your worldview of Zionism and your particular vocation, who are kind of in this uh, camp of allies? So the first matter that you brought up is true. Uh, we are uh, demonized by the right and the left. Certainly there's no political party in Israel that I feel comfortable with on the right or on the left. Uh, I, though I have to say that when uh, leftists meet me, they embrace me. Uh, they're usually reluctant to meet me. They even refuse. But once they do, uh, a transformation happens. So I have to tell you that uh, many of our Palestinian partners have been involved in trying to make peace for many years. They're not new like I am to this. And they've been involved in trying to make peace with the Israeli left what Ali Abu Wad calls the lefties who sit in the peace cafes in Tel Aviv. And Ali tells a story that until three years ago, all of his contact was with the Israeli left. And the Israeli left always said to him, Ali, we're good. We don't talk to settlers. And that's the prevailing wisdom. And Ali, in the past three years, two and a half, I'm sorry, two years, since he's met the settlers, everything I described to you, uh, he's realized that if you don't talk to the settlers, there's not going to be peace. And he has convinced hundreds of Israeli Jewish leftists to meet me. They're, they wouldn't be willing to meet me, but if the Palestinian says, well, we'll try it. <laughs> so Ali is making peace between the Israeli left and, and the settlers. Uh, yes, it's a lonely place. So uh, now, secondly, uh, you asked, how many people are we? It's hard to know how many people we are. I, I said briefly earlier that we have a core group of 15 or 20 on each side that we meet regularly once a week and are deeply exploring the expansion of our identities. Uh, we've had, I said earlier, perhaps 300, perhaps it was 500 people on each side who've come to our events, local people, I mean, very local. And then we have another 2,000 approximately Israelis, 2,000, no, 2,000 Israelis and a few Palestinians from around the whole country who've come to to hear us speak and uh, are interested and supportive of our activities. It's small, but I think that it, it's growing. And I have to tell you the truth, we have many, many, many more supporters among American Jews than we have among Israelis. Uh, it goes like this. The uh, Renewal and Reconstruction con congregations in America love us. The Reform congregations like us a lot. The conservative congregations are skeptical, and they're Orthodox congregations usually don't know what to do with us. Uh, but all in all, we have a lot of support in America. And in Israel, it's much harder because, because you know, people say, 
I've heard lots of Israelis say, until you come to Israel and make Aliyah, see what it's like, you can't criticize, you can't tell us what to do. That's prevailing wisdom, right? In a certain sense, the truth is exactly the opposite. The closer you are, the less you see. The closer you are to where I live, the more you're filled with fear and anger and rage that prevents you from seeing the reality. You guys know that reconciliation is the only way to go forward, as difficult as it is. But most Israelis and most Palestinians say there is no way to go forward because of the fear and because of the anger. So uh, the fear of the Palestinians or the reticence of the Palestinians vis-a-vis -vis meeting Israelis is far greater than that of the Israelis. 95% uh, of the Palestinians who come to our meetings with Israelis refuse to have their pictures taken. They're afraid. They're really afraid. I want to tell you that uh, there's a very uh, well-known Palestinian peacemaker, a Christian who lives in Bethlehem, the head of a major organization in Bethlehem, who's one of our partners in Roots. And uh, he's invited me to Bethlehem many times. And only about a month ago, I finally agreed to come to Bethlehem and to be his guest for a day. And by the way, I was breaking the law in doing so. Israelis are not allowed in Bethlehem. I was breaking the law, and according to common wisdom, I was risking my life. I wouldn't disguise, by the way. 
Uh, but the point I want to make is that he refused to have any pictures go on Facebook, that he was hosting me in Bethlehem. He was in fear, in real fear. So uh, as bad as the situation is among Israelis, we don't recognize the existence and the truth and narrative of the other. My impression is it's, as, it's worse on the other side. It's really the, the misconceptions and the ignorance and the stereotypes that Palestinians have about Israelis is mind-boggling and, and frightening. And the uh, consensus of opinion that you can't come near an Israeli, you can't talk to him, and certainly not a settler, is, uh, is a stumbling block to all the work we're doing. But you have to understand where it's coming from. We're the occupier, they're the occupied. They have to resist. And to make common cause with the occupier, to talk to the occupier, is seen as giving in to occupation, normalizing the occupation. One of the few acts of resistance available to them from their perspective is not to recognize our existence and our legitimacy. That's where it's coming from, and it has logic to it. However, from my perspective, and the perspective that roots the organization, dialogue with the settlers, with the enemy, is really the Palestinian secret weapon. Look what happened to me when they agreed to open themselves up to me. And I know hundreds of other Israelis who, through organization, have been sensitized to Palestinian humanity and Palestinian existence and Palestinian narrative and Palestinian truth. So from my perspective, the dialogue that we do is, is their secret, secret weapon, but from the point of view of 90% of Palestinians, it's forbidden. I see a number of questions. We're going to go until 8.30, so let's see if we can squeeze in a few more. So, Roots, Shorshim Judur, our movement, is not a political movement. Uh, we believe that the ground is not ready for peace. People are not ready for peace on either side. We're preparing the groundwork by the meetings that we do, by the dialogue work that we're involved in. But if you ask me, as a private citizen, how might I foresee a future peace plan, or if you ask many of my colleagues in Roots, we give the following answer, and it goes like this. It's basically based on a uh, think tank's proposal called IFKRI, if anyone ever heard of it, or perhaps you've heard of Gershom Baskin, who's a famous Israeli political commentator. He was the, uh, one of the people involved in IFKRI. 
Today, what I'm about to tell you is the platform of a movement called Two Nations in One Land, or Two Nations, One Homeland. So it goes like this. Two states won't work because drawing a line dividing Palestine and Israel denies the historical connection of Palestinians to Tel Aviv, Jaffa, Ashdod, the whole coast. And at the same time, it denies the Jews connection to our historic homeland, Hebron, Shiloh, Beit El, Hebron, or said Hebron already, Bethlehem. You can't draw a line and make two states because it'll blow up in our faces in five or 10 or 20 years because of the historical <coughs> connection, the religious connection, the deep emotional connection of both peoples to the other side. It also won't work because economically, we're, our economies are so intrinsically connected. That's our opinion. And because you can't unravel the connections that have been made in the past 30 years of all the settlements and all the bypass roads and all this and all that. On the other hand, you can't have a one-state solution from a Zionist perspective because our very identity, I won't go into it now, is based on having a Jewish state. So therefore, there's no solution. So the solution might be a hybrid between one state and two states. Uh, it's called two states with soft borders. It means you draw a line on the green line approximately. <coughs> and you have two states with citizenship in Palestine or in Israel. Palestinians here, Israelis here. But the border is porous. You can cross the border between the two states without a passport, without any documentation. There is no border. It's just on paper. Of course, there's a border around the amalgam of the two states. But in the middle, on the 48 line, the 67 line, the green line, there's no border. And you can live your whole life on the other side. You can be a Palestinian with Palestinian citizenship and vote in the Palestinian elections and live in Tel Aviv. And you can be an Israeli with Israeli citizenship living your whole life in a lone shvut, or in Hebron, or in Shiloh, wherever you want. And then there has to be a confederation between the two states. It's going to be called the Abrahamic Partnership, the Abrahamic Federation. And certain institutions will have to be mishutah, how do you say, uh, cooperative. Now, this plan that I just mentioned to you in five seconds, there's a whole book about it, sounds like a pipe dream. It is a pipe dream. It'll never work. Under present circumstances, it will never work because it requires reconciliation. But the truth is that any plan will never work given today's circumstances. It's all a pipe dream. It all depends on reconciliation. And very few are involved in reconciliation today. We're involved in recrimination. That's the word, recrimination? Uh, so the, and the other question you said was? You said that one, and then, uh, oh, do you have any hope? I have very little hope, but I have a sense of responsibility. So my question involves, I guess, uh, an assumption uh, on premise. I don't think it's a controversial one, but in fact, when they meet the Magnets, don't assume that you know anything. So based on the premise of economic disparity, I can't do that. I can't answer that. Because uh, I'm just not in the business of giving marks. I'm not in the business of uh, accusing. 
I'm in the business of doing my own homework. Every side has to clean their own house. There's a lot of cleaning to do. And I can't say who has more cleaning to do. Before I answer, I want to go back to the previous question in the back. I don't feel good, good with the answer I gave you because I have to be a little bit more nuanced. This is really hard for me. There is definitely a place inside me in which I say that they have a lot more work to do than us. That's inside me. But on the other hand, I know that there are things that I don't see because I'm not them. So I'm torn with an answer to your question. And I'll just have to go back and say that it's, it's not a fruitful thing to think about. Okay, so now the question I was asked right here. Uh, first of all, my understanding is that those demographics are not necessarily true anymore. But even if they are, let's talk about them. Uh, the plan that I mentioned is designed to deal with that because it decide that there will be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state, and those two states will exist all the time. It doesn't matter how many Palestinians there will be. It even doesn't matter how many Palestinians are living in Tel Aviv. They don't vote for the Israeli Knesset. They vote for the Palestinian parliament. So it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but there's another part of your question. Did I forget it? Uh, I'm not sure, but we have time for one yeah. more question, and then I think we'd rather be here for a little bit longer and focus on that for a few months. I'm sorry. Sorry. Do you believe that uh, continued expansion of settlements and development of new settlements is a good thing? Uh, a year ago, I thought that it was. Eight months ago, I didn't know. And today, I think that it's not. Can I explain? Oh, it, it's hard to explain. Okay, let me say this. A few seconds. My understanding is that the Jewish people have a real legitimate claim to the whole land. The settlements, among other things, are meant to express that claim, that true claim, and to anchor that true claim for the future. But on the other hand, those settlements are causing injustice to the Palestinians. I see that as a fact. Uh, land usage, state land, is used 99% of the time for Jewish usage. Palestinians aren't given land to expand, to build further towns for natural increase, schools, hospitals, no basketball courts, soccer courts. There's clearly injustice going on here. I Weighing, I think that we've made our claim to the land. Uh, and the settlers have to be taken into account in any peace plan because we're half a million. Can't just 
create peace by making half a million people refugees. It's not going to happen. So we've made our claim. And now we have to, from my perspective, uh, start learning how to express our deep, true, legitimate claim to the land in a fashion that doesn't come on the back and at the expense of another people. So at Valley of the we never try to persuade anyone to believe X, Y, or Z. We just try to make things much, much more complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So we hope that everyone tonight is leaving um, with a, 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 another reminder of how complicated life is, how complicated Torah is, how complicated this situation is, and that we have a responsibility to never walk away from the conversation and the process of learning and engaging. Whatever you fall out to me, that we have new questions and new grapplings, and that we're still in the game of keeping this conversation. I want to thank Rabbi Schneider and Coralie for hosting, and I could not think of a better educator uh, to come in share the complexity of this from a personal and intellectual place. Well, cannot thank you.